so they would take the Janakopoulos candy truck uh, up to the children's home and they would give candy to all of the children that were at the home. And that was something my father looked forward to every year and, mm. and of course the children did also. He found that all of the candy manufacturers had stopped manufacturing penny candy and this little package of, of powder was the only thing that a kid could buy him from the candy counter for a penny. It's a popular taste sensation for the kids, and uh, they uh, just seemed that they couldn't get enough of it. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. And before we move on, I want to remind you that the biggest source of St. Louis Public Radio's funding comes from listeners like you. Because you value what you hear on St. Louis on the Air, donate today. Go to stlpr.org donate. That's stlpr.org donate. A few weeks ago, we talked with Patrick Murphy. He's part of the St. Louis family that launched Switzer Licorice back in 1888. His new book, Candy Men, tells the company's remarkable story. So it's a story basically of two Irish Catholic families in the poor part, the Irish part of St. Louis, building the American dream basically on a foundation of candy. But as we talked to Patrick Murphy about the Switzer story, we heard from other St. Louisans with other sweet stories. As it turns out, St. Louis was something of a hub for candy manufacturing in the 20th century. And that extended all the way to Alton. That's where Steve Johnacopoulos' grandfather ran Princess Confectionery. Steve is a retired attorney who lives in Crestwood. His grandfather died in 1958 when Steve was just four years old. But he says plenty of history was passed down in family stories. And he joins us today with the highlights. So, Steve Johnacopoulos, welcome. Thank you very much. I understand your grandfather came to the U.S. in 1903 or 1904. Do you know anything about his life before that? Uh, well, he was, uh, my grandfather was born in the country of Greece uh, in what is called the Peloponnesian Peninsula um, in a little, in a, a small village there. And uh, in, like I said, in 1903 or 1904, he booked passage on an ocean freighter, and although a lot of Greeks and other European immigrants landed in at uh, Ellis Island in New York, my mm-hmm. grandfather came into the port of Lowell, Massachusetts. Oh, that's uh, an unusual but, American story right there. Well, it turns out that uh, there were a lot of uh, immigrants that came to Lowell because it was a hub of manufacturing at that time. Hmm. Lowell is not actually on the ocean. It's inland slightly, but it's on a big river. And so the ships would come slightly up the river to the port. And uh, my grandfather started out working in a shoe manufacturing plant. But uh, after a short period of time, he had kept in touch with one of the other Greeks that he transitioned to America on with. And this other Greek was in the town of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and had learned to manufacture candy and ice cream. Hmm. And so he uh, wrote to my grandfather and persuaded him to come to, to Wisconsin, where, which he did. So this makes sense. This is how he first gets into the candy business, but he's doing it in Wisconsin. Do you have any idea what brought him uh, down the river into St. Louis? My, my best understanding of him coming to Alton... Um, was because of the railroads. 
uh, you know, the railroads were a, a principal form of transportation at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of European immigrants uh, worked either manually on the railroad itself or or tangentially in industries related to it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, a number of railroads ran and still do to some extent through uh, the river town of Alton, which is just across the river from St. Louis. And that's how my father got to Alton and started plying his trade in, in what he had learned about making candy and ice cream. So he opened this place called Princess Confectionery. Uh, do we know what kind of candy he was making there? Uh, he made a, a variety of candies. Uh, he made hard candies. Um, and and uh, an interesting sidelight of that is uh, my grandfather became a pretty successful businessman um, in the uh, uh, late teens and early 20s of, of the 20th century. And the hard candy that he made, once a year he would fill one of his trucks with candy, and my father and my uncle would uh, take the truck uh, at my grandfather's instruction and up on State Street in Alton, it's, and it still is there, to my knowledge, uh, there is a Catholic children's home, hmm. essentially an orphanage, uh, for children who are um, have got a hard time. And so they would take the Johnicopolis candy truck uh, up to the children's home, and they would give candy to all of the children that were at the home. And that was something my father looked forward to every year, and, hmm. and of course the children did also. Yeah, I bet they were wildly popular there. <laughs> Very much so. So and, he's making all this candy. Um, do we know what happened to that business? Well, my grandfather was was an intuitively very smart fellow, and he became a very successful businessman in Alton. But he did not have any formal education. Mm-hmm. And so he was not well schooled in the in the formal sense. And when the Great Depression came, um, he he was at a disadvantage mm-hmm. in that respect. And uh, and uh, like many people uh, during those times, his business fortunes uh, uh, were on the downside, and and he lost a great deal of his business. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to say about candy manufacturing. Uh, this is the story that my father told me when he was still alive. My grandfather was one of the first uh, candy manufacturers to take the idea of taking a caramel nougat and rolling it in peanuts. Hmm. A- and he made essentially candy bars in that respect. Now, uh, eventually, uh, he was in contact with uh, another candy manufacturer in southern Illinois and uh, one thing led to another, and eventually uh, came to be the Payday Candy Bar, uh, which was made by the Hollywood Candy Company out of Centralia, Illinois. And so he uh, he felt some ownership of that idea. Absolutely, uh, he he was one of the first people to um, have that idea <laughs> and put it into practice. Uh, also, so he had his manufacturing plant for candy and ice cream, but then he had his retail store in the front of the factory that came to be known as the Princess Confectionery. 
and it was sort of a um, headquarters for the Greek American community in and around Alton and Southern Illinois. And so um, people came to know, people of Greek descent came to know that if they had problems and, and needed help with uh, the issues of life, they could go to my grandfather and call upon him for assistance. And he did a lot of that sort of thing. Well, that's a remarkable American life um, and, and just exciting to think about somebody coming here from Greece, knowing nothing about the candy business and inventing payday. That's that's quite a story. And Steve Johnacopoulos, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. I, I just If I could just briefly add. Sure. Uh, he also was in the entertainment business and he uh, he was responsible for the building of the Grand Theater in Alton, which has been boarded up for many decades, but it's still in existence. And it's owned by a prominent lawyer in Alton now named John Simmons. And this year is the 100th anniversary of the building of the Grand Theater in Alton, and it still exists. That is that is exciting. I mean, most people only have one claim to fame. This guy had two. That's awesome. <laughs> so well, He was, he was uh, from what I understand, quite a character. Well, you did a great job of, of uh, telling us about his story, and I thank you so much for sharing that today. You're very welcome. Now, Steve's stories about the candy company that his grandfather ran in Alton are passed down from family members. But Menlo Smith's stories come directly from the source. Menlo is 94 years old, and in 1952, he founded what would become the candy giant Sunmark Corporation. With that, he can claim inventing sweet treats from fun dip to pixie sticks to sweet tarts, sprees, and nerds. He's been described as a real-life Willy Wonka, and he joins us today. Menlo Smith, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be with you, sir. So your father started selling Kool-Aid-style packets. What made you guys realize that they could be marketed as candy? Well, when World War II started, two things happened to uh, citizens of the United States. Gasoline was rationed and sugar was rationed. And that meant that any manufacturer that had been using sugar would receive an allocation based on perhaps it might have been uh, 20% of the last three years' average of usage, something of that effect. Mm-hmm. And after that happened, uh, my father began to get orders for this funny little penny package of, of uh, mixed drink powder. And when he checked up to find out why he was getting his orders, he found that all of the candy manufacturers had stopped manufacturing penny candy, and this little package of, of powder was the only thing that a kid could buy from the candy counter for a penny. <laughs> and, but it turned out to be a, a taste sensation that kids had not had before. It was tart and it was sour. And uh, so he decided as long as they're consuming it that way, he changed the name to Lickamade, indicating the nature of the way in which they were eating it, and uh, also uh, uh, sweetened it up a little bit so it wasn't quite so sour, and it just turned out to be a taste sensation that kids everywhere liked. So, so kids kind of led the way. They took what had been meant to be a, a mixed uh, mix for drinks and turned it into candy, and, and your father was smart enough to follow that. 
That's exactly right. Now, you were living in Utah at this point. You moved to St. Louis to start your candy company and sort of build on this success. Why St. Louis? I did a very extensive study on the backs of about three envelopes and found out that St. Louis was the best place in the country to manufacture confectionery if you're going to be distributing it nationwide. Uh, The cost of raw materials was as favorable in St. Louis as most any place, and St. Louis has for 100 years been within 100 miles of the population center of the United States. So it's just an ideal place to manufacture and distribute candy. So this was a completely strategic decision. There was there was no heart. This was all head. Did you end up liking it here? It took us a while to to like St. Louis or to love St. Louis, as we came to do. Uh, they were having a, a heat wave at that time. We moved in in uh, July Oof. of 1952. It was 113 degrees in Webster Groves that afternoon. And my wife and I looked at each other and said, do we really want to do this? <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't just turn tail and, and head back well, to Utah. We we talked about that possibility, but we stuck it out and uh, came to love St. Louis very much. Matter of fact, we've chosen St. Louis twice now as a place to live. We lived in the Philippines for three and a half years and uh, we uh, ran a mission for our church over there, and we had sold our home in St. Louis before we left. So as we prepared to return, we thought, well, if we're ever going to leave someplace else, we should think about it before we return. Mm-hmm. So we made a list of every place in the country that we had ever been that we thought might be a nice place to live. And then we let that percolate for a while, and we finally decided that uh, even though there's some things that St. Louis doesn't have, we very much like the Heartland's values of St. Louis, the cultural and educational advantages, the friends we had here, the the four seasons that we enjoy in St. Louis. And uh, so we just came back to the place that we had come to love and and, Mm -hmm. uh, have been here ever since. And the candy company that you built here, this really took off. Uh, You you know, you mentioned this this journey that you took where you you were in the Philippines for a couple of years. I understand your company was making $122 million in candy sales when you stepped aside to supervise that mission. First of all, that's a ton of candy. What what were the candies that you were manufacturing at that point that were, were selling to that extent? All of those brands that you mentioned earlier. So this was things like Sweet Tarts and Sprees. Sweet Tarts and Spree and Nerds. And and uh, we were producing the Willy Wonka brands, uh, uh, Everlasting Gobstoppers and, and uh, other Wonka brands. So, so chocolate wasn't really your thing. These were just a different category of candy. Why do you think you found such success with these, you know, candies that are both sweet and a bit tart? Well, it just, it, again, it's a popular taste sensation for the kids, and uh, they uh, just seemed that they couldn't get enough of it. So this company's doing gangbusters, and then you, who were running it, you stepped away for like two and a half years, and, and you were doing this for an important reason, but I bet a lot of people must have thought you were crazy. What led you uh-huh. to, to make that choice? Uh, it was simply an opportunity to be of service, to help some other people, and uh, bring happiness in the lives of, of a lot of people. And uh, so we just had a great experience. Came to love the Filipino people and, and uh, the country. 
just had a great experience. And you're part of the Church of Latter-day Saints. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, yes. And this is their mission that was out there in the Philippines. And and were you there um, going door-to-door, or what were you doing while you were there? Well, I was president of the uh, uh, one of the missions in the Philippines. So you were supervising the, the young men who did go door-to-door? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Yes, we've had young men, young women, and, and also couples that uh, served in our mission. So you did that for two and a half years. You ended up deciding to move back to St. Louis, got back into the candy business. Was that a hard adjustment after going from, uh, from being preoccupied with souls to thinking about taste buds again? Well, it, incidentally, it was three and a half years, not two and a half but uh, uh, it really wasn't wasn't hard. We were delighted to be back with our families and uh, our children and grandchildren and so forth. So after about three decades in the candy business, you ended up selling uh, Sunmark. This was in 1986. What, why did you decide yeah. to sell? Well, we decided that it would be the advantage of all of the stakeholders, uh, the, the customers, the employees, uh, our suppliers, uh, stockholders, uh, it was approaching the point where I might have been thinking about retirement, although I stayed active in business for another 25 years. <laughs> but uh, in any event, it was uh, it turned out to be a good thing for everybody, and so that's what we did. So it ended up being sold um, ultimately to Nestle. They closed the corporate offices in 1999, and then they closed the last local plant in 2006. Was that hard to see that this thing that you built uh, no longer really has a presence in St. Louis? It was very disappointing, uh, especially for all of those employees that had come to love the company so much and were so much a part of it. So we've been talking a lot about these candy companies, uh, Switzer's Licorice. We talked to uh, Princess Confectionery, the, the uh, grandson of the founder in Alton, talking today about your company, Sunmark. In those years that you were making candy in St. Louis, did St. Louis feel like a candy hub? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, I found out after I'd been in St. Louis for a year or so that some years earlier, St. Louis had been the the major confectionery manufacturing location in the country. Hmm. So this, uh, you had come up with this on the back of, as you said, three envelopes, but you arrived at something that, that other people had figured out. That's right. So while you were all there doing this work, did you feed off each other's ideas? Was there some collaboration between companies ever? Not uh, particularly. Um, I became uh, friends with the, one of the managers of the Switzer company, uh, over the years, Bob Kill. But uh, by this time, uh, apart from some of the local confectioners uh, other and other than Switzer, all of the other candy manufacturers that at one time had been in St. Louis had either left the business or left and moved elsewhere. Hmm. It's really sad to think about this, this once proud confectionery legacy, and today it is all gone. Do you think St. Louis could ever regain the kinds of strategic advantages that made you want to build a business here in the first place? I could speculate about that, but uh, I, I doubt that it would regain that. Chicago has really become the, uh, the manufacturing hub for uh, confectionery products today. We're talking today to Menlo Smith. Today he's 94 years old, um, but when he lived in St. Louis, he founded what would become the candy giant Sunmark Corporation.
Well, I know even though you're not in the candy business, you have stayed very active. Um, after you uh, got out of Sun- Sunmark, you founded Mentors International. That's a nonprofit that works to empower the world's poor to grow in self-reliance through personal and business mentoring and access to financial services. Why was that something that was important to you? It was uh, having spent uh, three and a half years in the Philippines uh, living uh, among the, the poverty-stricken, as, as the entire country is, uh, it, uh, it had just been a concern of ours that these wonderful, bright, hard-working Filipino people uh, couldn't be better off. And we, we realized that there were really two things that stood in the way. The graft and corruption that is found in developing countries throughout the world, and also the fact that these people are bound by traditions that really hold them back. Hmm. They there was a tendency to feel that whatever their parents and their grandparents did, that's what they have to do as well. Hmm. And uh, they uh, they have not been schooled in in uh, the principles and ideas that are necessary to have in order to succeed in life and in business. So uh, before leaving the Philippines, I tried to get the uh, a dozen or so of the more well-to-do uh, Filipino men that I had become acquainted with to es- help establish a revolving loan fund. And they all turned me down. Hmm. And they turned me down for the same, in every case for the same reason. They said, because of our culture, people will never repay a loan. And that's kind of the way the culture is. And so uh, uh, having been in business and having spent 20 or so years uh, on the board of directors of a, an organization called World Neighbors, which works in developing countries to help people improve their, their livelihood, I knew something about how to do it. I knew some of the problems and some of the things that uh, the principles that had to pertain and uh, realized that the effort could not be successful unless there were meaningful accountability associated with any loans that might be made. Mm -hmm. And uh, so out of that, we finally developed what became Mentors, and uh, Mentors has today helped over 4 million people to uh, bootstrap themselves out of punishing poverty, and they now enjoy some degree of adequacy, if not affluence. That's uh, that's remarkable. I mean, looking at that and, and the work that nonprofit does, do you feel more pride in that than all the candy that you helped to make? Yes, indeed. Hmm. Yep. I understand you've also kept super busy even even these days. You learned to ply, fly a plane just a few years ago. This was at age 92. What made yes. you decide to learn to do that? Well, I had, as a youngster, I was crazy about airplanes, and I joined three branches of the service in World War II trying to get to flight school, but uh, the darn war ended on me. (laughs) You're one of the only people to be sad that war ended, but yes. So so I never got to flight school. So it was just one of, I don't have a bucket list, but it was just one of those things that I had always thought about doing, but uh, while I was running businesses and so forth, I just didn't have time to to do that. So, I, well, uh, as long as I had the ability, uh, uh, I might as well do it. So you did it at 92. Do you have anything next on the agenda now that you're 94? Uh, not particularly, just, just more the same. I, uh, 
uh, one of my favorite activities these days is something called rock crawling. You take a, a, a Jeep and you modify it. You, you lift the suspension, put big tires on it. Then you go out and find uh, obstacles in the mountains that are impossible to climb, but you figure out a way to climb them anyway. And it's, uh, it's fascinating and it's fun. And so uh, we do a lot of that out in the western states. That sounds like a great hobby. And I got to say, you've just had the most amazing life. You've had so many wonderful adventures and, and you've done so much with your life. Is there any advice that you would give the rest of us um, that would maybe help us to have even just a little portion of, of your spirit there? <laughs> well, I tell people never to take advice from me. <laughs> they're, they're at risk when they do. So uh, the only thing I would suggest is, at least has worked for me, is just keep moving and uh, don't stop because you might not get started again. Well, there you go. That's some good advice. Keep moving. Menlo Smith, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's a delight to visit with you, Sarah. Thank you. Tomorrow on St. Louis on the Air, we'll meet a St. Louis entrepreneur recently featured on Shark Tank. You can buy his product at local malls. He'll tell us the idea behind what he's selling. We'll also talk to Bo Williman. The St. Louis native made his name launching House of Cards. Now he has a new documentary. More reporting from the St. Louis on the Air team is available at stlpublicradio.org. And be sure never to miss a conversation by subscribing to our podcast. You can find St. Louis on the Air on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts on the App Store. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.